Welcome to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. It's everything in-house, legally speaking. Technology, business practices, trends, and controversies important to corporate counsel. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to In-House Legal. I'm attorney Paul Boynton, and I've covered the in-house community for over six years as a legal journalist and now have my own media consultancy. This portion of the show is sponsored by the Huron Consulting Group. In the wake of the Association of Corporate Counsel's Value Challenge Initiative launched last fall, there's been much discussion about how law firms can deliver more cost-effective legal services to their corporate clients. But at the same time, there's a growing recognition among in-house lawyers that fundamental change in their relations with outside counsel will only occur if in-house lawyers themselves are willing to shed the tried and true and adopt a new paradigm. And that means demanding alternative fees, not just paying lip service to it, or hiring new lesser-known law firms, or even firing lawyers who don't shape up and do what's necessary to provide excellent services on a consistent basis. With us today is Jim Dorham, a former in-house lawyer and veteran law firm marketing consultant. Jim is the author of what's been described as a little gem of a book entitled The Essential Little Book of Great Lawyering, in which he provides the blueprint for developing business with corporate clients. His advice on those pages fits squarely with the goals of in-house counsel, demanding excellence from their service providers. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you very much, Paul. It's great to be here. Now, Jim, in your book, you implored lawyers to be, above all else, client-centric. In other words, outside lawyers need to be in tune with what their clients want and need. So let's turn that around. Uh, From the perspective of in-house counsel, what should they expect and even demand from their outside counsel? One of the things that I've realized is that uh, many years ago, uh, some of the the firms got involved with the the DuPont Convergence Program, and everyone talked about it being an aberration. Um, It was just a few firms working with one client on so-called partnering. And I think one of the interesting developments is that all these many years later, probably 15 years later, partnering probably is the the, the magic word. Uh, I think in-house counsel have such a tremendous opportunity right now to truly partner with outside counsel uh, because they have their attention and there is a real willingness I'm seeing among uh, law firm clients to listen more carefully to what inside counsel wants. And so I think crafting mutually, um, sort of mutually beneficial playing rules is just a critical first step, sitting down and having that conversation. And for many in-house folks, that, that means finding firms that are willing to have that conversation. So what you're saying is that it's really in the hands of in-house counsel to be the real change agents here, that it's, it's really them that can, can drive this show. As someone, I've, I've interviewed hundreds of, of in-house counsel on behalf of law firms to find out what they like about working with their outside counsel, what they could be doing better. And I was always surprised at how little I was able to bring back in terms of innovation or, or suggestions for new ways of working together, a little bit of what you said in the introduction. The tried and true was still the safest way, just maybe give us a discount. And now I think the, the, the collection of, uh, of options for in-house counsel range from having really meaningful outside counsel guidelines. Um, one uh, major company has a scorecard, which I found to be tremendously useful because the firm I was working with took it very seriously. And they waited, you know, 
breathlessly to get their report at the end of each six-month period, and they change their behaviors to do better on the scorecard. Um, checklists for representation, um, clarity about the preferred ways of communication and the lines of communication, all of that can be and I think should be initiated by um, inside counsel so that there's just no question what their expectations are. And anyone who can't meet them, I do think it's probably time to find a new firm because someone will. Is the uh, downturn in the economy really driving this or is this really, uh, are you seeing kind of a sea change in the way things are, are happening? I, I think the economy has actually precipitated the change. I, I, I bet if you Googled back and found some speech I made 10 years ago, it would have said, we are on the verge of changing the way lawyers uh, do business with, uh, with clients. And in fact, every year I sort of waited for the, the big change. And incrementally, more firms were adapting to uh, higher value standards by the clients, but it was, it was incremental. And, and right now, and, and partly, partly because businesses were doing so well to simply say, okay, we want to move our legal spend from 2 million to 2.5 million next year, knowing it's going to be a little more expensive or 50 million to 60 million was okay because it was part of the business, uh, what businesses had to spend. Now, the, the 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 message is very clearly, you know, sixty million. We need to find a way to do it for forty million and get better service. So I I think really the the opportunity is now. Now in your book you describe the difference between being a good lawyer and a great lawyer. Can you explain that distinction to our listeners? Well, I I think they would recognize a lot of this because I, I do not uh, I do not pretend to have all the answers. I tell people in the book that. Almost everything I wrote was based on my hundreds of interviews with in-house counsel telling me what they valued in outside counsel. And what I tried to do was go through all of the various elements of lawyering um, and, and distinguish between good and great by, by some things as simple as um, good lawyers return phone calls. Okay, that's sort of expected. I don't, I don't think you're in business if you don't. But great lawyers actually initiate phone calls to clients when they're not working on matters and they're not charging them for it. Um, they're, they're letting them know they're thinking about them and they're suggesting ways in which they might help the client. And these are the key words I use. Um, they, anything that a lawyer can do to help the in-house folks uh, make money, save money, look good, or sleep better at night is a value added to the relationship. And when I test that with in-house folks, they say, absolutely. The lawyers who were there trying to help me save money, taking the initiative, they're the ones I want to work with. That's a great lawyer. Uh, they're helping me sleep better at night by knowing that it's, they've updated me. It's, being, it's proceeding as they, they, they said it would. When things get off track, I know about it right away. Um, I'm, I'm being told where we are with costs. So sleeping better, you know, any of those are examples of great versus good. And then I actually suggest some other more uh, relational concepts, such as personalizing relationships a little bit. Everybody doesn't want their outside counsel to be their best friend, but just understanding that they are not a billing category. They're a person, uh, a person very often with families or friends or hobbies. Just knowing a little bit about them is, again, difference between a great lawyer and a good lawyer who just sees them as someone who gives them assignments and they do good work for. So it's just upping the ante in all aspects of the relationship in, in the way you, you communicate, in the way you think about them, the, the level to which you understand their business, 
asking to read their strategic plan and not charging them for it versus not even thinking about it, uh, difference between great and good. Now, looking inwardly, these principles can apply to in-house counsels and their relation with their client, which is the company that employs them. Isn't that right? Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Paul, because, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about uh, among the firms about this is a must-read for lawyers who are serving uh, companies and, and small businesses. And one of the reasons I wrote it was because I had been retained on a couple of occasions by in-house law departments to help them improve the ways in which they provided service to their in-house clients. And I, I, it, it's not lost on me that when I was passing around early drafts of the book for comment, uh, the, the general counsel up at Timberland said to me, Jim, this all applies to us in our relationships with our in-house folks, and I'd, I'd be happy to endorse your book because I think you've got it, got it right. And so, you know, it's, there's no royalties for her, no, no free pizza. Um, just she, she told the world that she thought it was a great uh, read for everyone who practices law, and I'm, I'm really pleased that she saw it that way because I do too. Jim, one final question. One way for uh, in-house counsel to perhaps uh, rein in the cost a bit is to start working with uh, perhaps smaller, uh, lesser-known law firms. What's your sense on and this is a, a generalization, I realize, but what's your sense of the willingness in the current environment of in-house counsel to, to take a chance and, and to go with a firm that uh, you know, basically does great work, probably has lower rates, but they aren't as well known? I, I think that's a really interesting question because over the years, there has been a sense that, and again, this is a generalization, but there's been a sense that if in-house counsel picks a lesser-known firm and things go badly, um, in-house counsel is at risk. And so there's this concept of the safe choice. Um, as I've done more and more client interviews, I've learned that there's an increasing willingness uh, by clients to consider other firms because of what you just said. There is an in, uh, increasing emphasis on cost savings, and usually the smaller firms have lower rates and can work very efficiently, often with much more partner time and less um, associate involvement. And their quality is outstanding. Uh, most of the consulting work I'm doing right now is with smaller firms between you know, 50 and 150 lawyers. And I'm I'm, I shouldn't be surprised, but I am absolutely convinced that the quality of their work for, for most of what's called upon is, is excellent. And when we're not talking about a bet the company matter, I think increasingly there's a willingness to look at these firms. And frankly, I would recommend to firms... Uh, to, to clients that they, they consider them. Uh, there's some really fine firms out there. Uh, there certainly are. And in-house in counsel uh, can just go back to the original point. They're the change agents. So take a little bit of a chance and uh, see what good can come of it. Uh, thank you, Jim, for joining us today to share your thoughts and insights on, on how in-house lawyers can effectively change the way that their outside law firms provide services to them. You know, Jim, you'll be offering an audio version of your book, The Essential Little Book of Great Lawyering, uh, which can be downloaded soon, as I understand. Is that right? I just recorded it last week, and it'll be on the, the, uh, the website, which is interesting. It's a mouthful, but it's uh, greatlawyeringbook.com. And uh, I welcome uh, the in-house folks. In fact, um, you know, it would mean a lot to me if we could get this message in, into them so that they could start uh, 
changing the way in which lawyers and clients work together. Jim, in addition to the uh, the website, which again is uh, greatlawyeringbook.com, uh, could you share your contact information with our listeners? Yeah. In fact, uh, glad to. It's J Durham, J D U R H A M, at four letters, L F D G dot com. Happy to chat with anyone about any of the issues we've discussed or anything related to that. L F D G dot com. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we will talk with Marty Mazzoni, Associate General Counsel at Fidelity Investments. Here on Consulting Group's Legal Consulting Practice, a leading provider of consulting and business services to corporations and law firms, helps align strategy, people, processes, and technology to meet the goals of the organization. We also help prepare and plan for all phases of discovery in a legal dispute or investigation. We establish an effective records management program that creates cost savings and enhanced productivity while minimizing risk. Check out Velocity, the first comprehensive e-discovery solution. For more information, visit us at www.huronconsultinggroup.com. Welcome back to In-House Legal. I am your host, Paul Boynton. I am now joined by Martha Mazzoni, Vice President and Associate General Counsel in the Legal Department of Fidelity Investments in Boston. Before she joined Fidelity, Marty was a litigation partner at Foley Hoag in Boston and also practiced at Latham and Watkins in Washington, D.C. for four years. Now, at Fidelity, Marty is primarily responsible for major case and regulatory discovery and for also providing counsel and best practices advice on company-wide policies, practices, and technology in records management, retention and retrieval of electronic communications, as well as pre-litigation readiness. Marty, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Paul. Well, why don't you start by explaining your position with Fidelity in a little bit more uh, detail on your day-to-day responsibilities, because I'm sure that that brief introduction I provided does not do you justice. Sure. I um, I came to Fidelity as a litigator. I was recruited specifically because I had done so much um, major case discovery and e-discovery specifically, and the role has evolved tremendously since uh, I walked in the door and certainly since um, the initial job description was written. I could try to go into my day-to-day responsibilities, but I think they might um, really <laughs> take over the next 10 minutes. So it will probably be best for me just to sort of sum it up by saying that I often refer to myself in, as the facts lady in the legal department, F-A-C-T-S. Um, and that's because I spend most of my day helping people either find facts or helping technology groups in our businesses um, develop technologies that allow us to retain and search for information, helping records management people learn how to destroy information without imperiling the company or putting us at risk. And essentially what I do is um, deal with the fact that large companies like Fidelity have hundreds of millions of records and it's important to find efficient ways to get the data when you need it for your litigation, but also to prevent problems in litigation by managing the data correctly. And that ends up being 
partly a technology counseling job, partly a records management counseling job. I deal with a lot of policy and practice issues. And then I just work on a lot of cases and, and get information and, dis- and do discovery for a lot of cases. In the end, you know, every case has a limited amount of key data that is going to be important when, whether you're putting it in front of a regulator or in front of a jury. And, you know, those five to ten pieces of data that are going to make your case for you have to be found in the volumes of data that any large company has. Marty, could you go in a little bit more detail on the challenges that you're facing and in, in finding those five pieces of uh, data that you really need? Sure. I um. I often say when I speak on this topic that, you know, 100 years ago, there might have been 50 boxes of ledgers to go through. And 50 years ago, you might have had 100 boxes because the copier machine had uh, or the mimeograph had been invented. And even 25 years ago, you might have had 5,000 boxes because of the copier machine. But now you've got hundreds of millions of pieces of data in dozens and dozens of systems, at least in a broad-based multi-industry company like Fidelity. And in the end, finding those five pieces of data means sifting that much more chaff from the wheat. And in this company, anyway, and I think also many companies are like this, and certainly the world is like this, and everybody under 25 is like this, there are multiple ways of communicating electronically. And those Um, technologies and features for electronic communications have proliferated. So we really needed to get a grasp on how we were allowing our businesses and our business folks to communicate electronically, how they were storing data. And we've come a huge way in just the basic records management principles of consolidating our technologies, consolidating our data storage, and addressing the legal and compliance risks related to those technologies and learning how to search them so that we can find what we're looking for in the most efficient way. We had a, a, a lot of, um, there are a lot of technologies out there for, for good search engines working on electronic data, and we built some of our own, and we spend a lot of time, as I said earlier, working on prevention, working on helping um, our businesses do better records management so that what we're looking for is, or let me put it this way, so that we're looking through the least amount of stuff to find what we're looking for in the most efficient way. Well, this must surely impact the cost, doesn't it? Yes, I think that's probably the ultimate issue, certainly for the um, executive leadership of any company. They're going to be looking at, well, how much does this cost me? And one thing I always want to point out when this issue comes up of cost is that, of course, and maybe this is even too obvious to say, but of course, there are costs and then there are costs. And one of the biggest costs for any company is is its reputation if it gets damaged. And as we all know, if we're in the e-discovery world or in the legal world, it is um, very easy to, in, in litigation these days, to set up almost a parallel lawsuit based on spoliation of data, based on failure to produce data, based on um, not on the merits of the matter that you're working on, but on the notion that um, you somehow were, that you were a bad actor in hiding evidence. And so 
I always, when I think about cost and what things cost, I always try to add in what's the long-term cost of our reputation if we don't do this well. And that's a fairly good argument, actually, I found with senior leadership. Um, This also is a company that is very devoted to technology, efficiency, and trying to do things better. And that's been a real boon for me because when I raise issues of efficiency and technology and maybe buying new technology or looking at nicer search engines or uh, creating consolidated repositories, yes, it's expensive, but we we work on those things and we find budgets for those things because we certainly know um, the value of doing it long-term. At the same amount of time, we have, um, uh, like any large company, plenty of litigation that routinely used to go out to law firms where the costs are not so easily controlled. So earlier I was talking about what I was doing in-house and what what you know we were doing in-house from, from a preventative point of view, from a records management point of view. But once the lawsuit's been filed or once the regulate, regulatory inquiry has um, been sent to your company, what do you do then? And the traditional thing that you used to do was hand it off to outside counsel and let outside counsel then manage the case as efficiently or as non-efficiently as you manage them. I'm a big believer in trying to bring a lot of discovery work and case management in-house, partly because it protects the data itself. I'm a big believer in not sending data over the firewall if I don't have to, and partly because it is a really effective way of containing costs during all phases of um, discovery all the way up to, you know, briefing for for major motions. In addition to bringing uh, some of this work in-house, are there other service providers other than law firms that have been assistance to you? Yeah, so that that is um, key, actually. And, and this is not to be disparaging of law firms, not at all. But I do think that all of us, clients and law firms, and I was in a law firm for many years, have to address this changing model. We There are groups out there that I would call, first of all, there's the whole technology vendor world any discovery and and they can be extremely helpful and they're critical partners in a major e-discovery effort but there are also these groups that I would call something like discovery attorneys maybe at one time you would have called them staffing groups but they provide high quality attorneys for an extremely minimal cost compared to the cost of law firm associates and by using those groups um those kinds of discovery attorney groups to um, to do your in-house to do your review and manage that in-house. You're saving your law firm attorneys for building the legal defense. So to me, you'd say I'm building my factual defense over here with my in-house contract attorneys or discovery attorneys, and then I'm transferring the knowledge they're gaining to our legal defense team out at the law firm who are writing our briefs or whatever, and that transfer of knowledge becomes, you know, a very important element in in what I'm trying to do. But I definitely think that we can almost see a third leg to the stool here now. Instead of a direct link just from client to law firm, you've also now got, you know, an opportunity to say, get me a good set of discovery counsel who will continue to work with my company case after case, will know what I 
do, we'll know acronyms, we'll know leaders and so forth, and they'll be able to dig out the facts. Are there any particular uh, discovery councils, as you've characterized them, uh, that you've worked with uh, that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, well, I, I mean, one of the um, one of the best things I ever did, I signed up for a list serve, um, and I highly recommend reading those things, folks, if, even if uh, you don't have time, because you never know what you learn. And I, I saw a, a request for discovery attorneys, which the whole concept of discovery attorneys was kind of new to me, that had been put out on the listserv, and somebody from an extremely large company that I knew well had recommended a group called Council on Call. Um, and Council on Call is a Nashville-based um, company. It's, it, they have uh, offices all over the country, but um, based in Nashville. And what they do is seek out very experienced attorneys who are really looking for a different way of life than the um, normal law firm or in-house life, possibly people who want to work three days a week because they have a musical career or moms or whatever their motivation is. So they're attorneys who would be in law firms and in-house, but for their desire for a different world. They're highly, highly vet, different schedule, highly, highly vetted. Um, and uh, so this person on this listserv who I respected said, you know, I, I use them and I never look back, and I have had enormous success with this group. Um, they understand the vision, they understand the review process, they have a vision for the whole discovery process that mirrors mine, they understand the need to work with the law firm to provide the knowledge that the attorneys are gaining through their document review to the law firm, but to provide, provide it in an efficient way. And so I find that these and the great thing is that over time you start to work with the same lawyers over and over again who then become available just to you. I mean, Counsel and Call has actually set up almost a fidelity team for us, and I, you know, I know these lawyers, and I can say I want Susie on this case or I want Steve on that case. They have different um, qualifications, different credentials, and you end up with almost like a little mini law firm that uh, you can call on to work with your law firm on any major case, but at a quarter of the price. And I would say that their experience with the various review tools, their experience with doing this kind of fact-finding and investigation makes them actually probably better at doing this than sometimes a first-year law associate might be. Marty, we have time for one more question. Uh, now that you've been with Fidelity for a few years and have implemented several new discovery initiatives, what advice would you give to someone who might find themselves where you were a few years ago? What are your your primary lessons learned? Well, one thing that I would say, um, if you're talking about the technology side of things, make sure you've got the right technology people working with you. Um, it's hard to find the right litigation support technology people. We have an awesome team here, and that has been a, a lifesaver for me because a lot of the ability to manage that kind of triangle of um, lawyers over here dig digging up the facts and lawyers over there developing your legal defense, a lot of that is dependent upon good technology and people's ability to use it. So 
I would say, first of all, make sure that you've got a technology backbone and technology support people who are really your partners in trying to build this kind of e-discovery capability in-house. I would say that although there are always going to be times where you have to turn everything over to a law firm, I think that the old law firm model may be a little bit outdated. Um, and I think that the way that the firms have been experiencing some you know, pressure on their rates and so forth is exemplary of that. Developing this kind of triangle of working with a counsel on call and a law firm to get the work done in the most efficient way, I would say that's been one of the things that I've been able to do in my three years here at Fidelity that has undoubtedly saved the company the most money of everything I've done, and I would put that in the millions easily. And um, and then it has the most impact because everybody loves it. Everyone loves the system. And I include in that the law firms who would really, you know, like to have the revenue, but in the end, they like to focus on what they want to focus on and not have to review documents. So in the end, it's a big win for everybody. And I just recommend people really look hard at this sort of three-legged model. Marty, your insights today on this extremely important topic are are most appreciated. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for uh, asking me to join you, and I enjoyed, enjoyed doing it. Thank you. Marty is a regular speaker on the discovery process at national conferences and events, so if you have the opportunity to see or speak, I would highly recommend it. You can also find more information about Fidelity Investments at www.fidelity.com and Council on Call at www.councilloncall.com. We hope you'll join us for another in-house legal show. Thanks for listening today. I'm Paul Boynton, host of In-House Legal, your online source of the news and information in-house lawyers need to stay ahead of the game. Thanks for listening to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. Hot topics for the in-house lawyer, legally speaking. We hope you'll listen to the next edition right here on the Legal Talk Network.